everybody, I'm the Woodmother, and this is Woodmother's Workshop, a low-budget, low-effort, low-quality practice podcast that I'm using to build my writing and audio production skills. I talk about my ongoing creative projects, mostly focusing on the research process for the story I'm writing called Gate City Blues. You might notice this episode has a little bit more planning put into it than last week's. For the first episode, I was just trying not to overthink things too much, so I just hit record and started talking. But I noticed that when I tried to keep it improvised and casual, I ended up with a lot of pauses and dead space. Plus, I sound better when I'm reading aloud than when I'm just making things up as I go, so I decided to write a script this time. I'm hoping that the script, combined with a more consistent delivery, will help improve my audio quality and speed up editing time. One of the first things I noticed, actually, when working on last episode was that it takes so much longer to edit the audio than it does to record it, but that's probably because I'm still pretty new to the editing software. In terms of setup, I just used the microphone built into my earbuds, and I recorded into the Voice Memos iPhone app, then saved it to my files, then opened it up on my iPad, and edited it using the app Hokusai 2. I realized that I can record directly into the Hokusai app instead, so that's what I'm doing now. Uh, This should help streamline the workflow a little bit. I'm also sitting in the closet in my bedroom instead of sitting on my bed, and hopefully it should cut down on some of the background noise. I've never really edited audio before, so the only thing I have to compare it to is the InShot app I use to edit my TikTok videos. The controls in the Hokusai app are going to take some getting used to, but I'm going to try maybe some different editing software and see how they compare. Uh, Last week after I finished editing the podcast, I set up an account on rss.com, which wasn't as hard as I thought it would be. But the one thing that did give me trouble was choosing which categories the podcast would be sorted into for Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I picked crafts, hobbies, and books, but it took me like 10 minutes to decide. You guys know how I get about taxonomy. (laughs) But uh, then I waited until the day it was meant to release to try to upload it instead of uploading in advance and scheduling the post. I ended up having an issue with the upload and it went out a little later than I intended, but this time I'm working on being more organized. I mean, this whole process needs to be better planned out and organized and hopefully Doing this will be exactly what I need to start having some sense of schedule during my week. Uh, And speaking of planning, this is a great opportunity to talk about what I've been working on this past week and what I hope to work on next. One of the main reasons I'm doing this podcast is to document my research. I have a notoriously bad memory, so giving myself a reason to repeat what I've learned is actually really helpful in cementing that knowledge in my brain. Having to write up this script and then saying it out loud for the purposes of explaining it to someone else and then re-listening to it as I edit really internalizes that knowledge. So, I want to tell you guys about what I've been reading. This week, I'm still sort of maybe a third of the way through the book The History of White People by Nell Irvin Painter, and that is just so good. I cannot wait to tell you more about that in a future episode. But for now, I want to talk about my research into vaudeville history. A few weeks ago, I started reading a book called No Applause, Just Throw Money by Travis S.D. And while most of the information in that book is accurate, it was written in the smarmiest way possible. 
The guy's whole tone read like the pickup artist from that one episode of Criminal Minds where they explain what negging is. So after that, one of my lovely TikTok followers, Miranda, sent me a copy of a book that had been on my list for a while. Highbrows, Hillbillies, and Hellfire, Public Entertainment in Atlanta from 1880 to 1930, which was written by Steve Goodson, who's a professor of history at the University of West Georgia. And not only did that book feel a lot more credible, but it was a lot more specific to my interests as well. But no applause, just throw money wasn't completely useless, even though I just hated the tone. Um, in it, uh, the author, Trav S.D., explains the difference between minstrel shows, variety shows, and vaudeville, which I hadn't fully realized were separate things. Uh, so, minstrel shows were a type of variety show that often featured blackface performers portraying stock characters, kind of like Commedia dell'arte. It was popular in the early 1800s and often featured adult entertainment with dirty jokes and burlesque performers, that sort of thing. This was during a time in which the theater and public entertainment in general was seen as inherently sinful and worldly to the church. It was heavily associated with the vices of gambling, heavy drinking, and sex work because the majority of stages that traveling minstrels performed on were in saloons. Like, if you can imagine those old-timey Wild West movies with the ladies with the big frilly skirts dancing the can-can, that's the sort of vibe. It wasn't until folks like uh, General Monster of a Human Being P.T. Barnum popularized the combination of natural history museum slash sideshow slash stage performance, a format that would later become known as dime museums, that society's opinion of public entertainment began to shift. It was seen as something that had the potential to be somewhat educational and family-friendly. So the type of show we now call vaudeville, which was most popular between the 1880s and 1910s, grew out of this desire to clean up theater's image and appeal to a mixed-gender, family-friendly audience. Vaudeville pioneers B.F. Keith and Edward Albee enforced strict moral guidelines on their performers in order to appeal to the church-going crowd, going so far as to make comedians scrub all the foul language from their sets. The collection of Keith Albee theaters they owned came to be known as the Sunday School Circuit because of this sort of clean, family-friendly image. Uh, also, something really significant that I learned was that vaudeville doesn't just refer to the specific style of show that was produced, but the entire infrastructure uh, as a whole. There was this whole interconnected system of theaters and booking agents and so when vaudeville died out in the 1930s, it wasn't just that that style of show had fallen out of favor, but that so many of those specific theaters had closed as a result of the Great Depression that the circuit just couldn't sustain itself any longer. Now, there was a black vaudeville network known as TOBA, or the Theater Owners Booking Association, uh, and that featured acts like Ma Rainey, Bessie Smith, Ethel Waters throughout the 20s, um, but the circuit died off in 1930 when Toba's founder sold his chain of theaters to a cinema company. And it was in this void left by Toba that the Chitlin circuit first emerged, which was a network of black-friendly venues that would provide a home for black performers from the 1930s throughout the segregation era. 
Fun fact, if you look up the Chitlin Circuit on Wikipedia and scroll to the list of theaters, the very first one is Atlanta's own Royal Peacock on Auburn Avenue, previously known as the Top Hat Club. That club is one of the historic buildings that I visited during my trip to Auburn Avenue a few weeks ago. Now, Steve Goodson's book, Highbrows, Hillbillies, and Hellfire, brings up the fact that vaudeville in the South looked very different than it did in the North. For one, the cities were farther apart, and most major Southern cities still weren't nearly as large as Northern cities like New York and Chicago, which meant that individual theaters had to pay a higher train fare for their performers, uh, and a lot of performers just didn't want to work the Southern Circuit because there weren't as many theaters to go to. Uh, Atlanta specifically was still recovering from Sherman's March to the Sea and was barely more than a large town by the time vaudeville was gaining national traction. Plus, there was a lot of religious pressure to stay true to traditional rural values and not be corrupted by the worldly influences of the North. So Atlanta sat at this strange crossroads. Uh, being one of the Deep South's largest and most centrally located cities during Reconstruction, uh, and it was a railway hub that served as a sort of halfway point between New York and New Orleans. In the first chapter of Highbrows, Hillbillies, and Hellfire, Goodson writes, During the period between the Civil War and the Great Depression, Atlanta's promoters sought to move their region toward a reconciliation with the North and toward an embrace of the industrial capitalism that had triumphed in 1865. But Atlanta also played a prominent role in the glorification of the lost cause and white Atlantans ferociously defended Southern racial conventions. Thus, whether exalting the Gate City as the Chicago of the South or satirizing it as a vest pocket edition of New York, commentators recognized that Atlanta represented something new, a deep South city aspiring to the vitality and swagger of its Northern counterparts while clinging tenaciously to the old ways and priorities, a city with one eye on the future and the other ever on the past. So, understandably, Atlanta was a few years behind the mainstream trends for much of Vaudeville's reign. Uh, the city didn't quite have a large enough population to sustain enough theaters to have a really varied sort of entertainment, um, not until, you know, past the turn of the century at least. But by the 1920s, which is when my story is set, radio had introduced mass communication, which served as sort of a cultural equalizer between the North and South. You know, now Southern audiences could have access to performances by the original cast of famous New York shows instead of getting the B-listers, who were the only ones that were willing to journey down South. Uh, in fact, Atlanta was home to the South's first radio station, WSB, which opened in 1920. Because of Atlanta's status as an unplanned child of the railroads, as Goodson describes it, artists from all over the South converged on Atlanta to be featured on the radio and to be recorded by agents of New York record companies that had set up little recording studios throughout the city. In fact... Atlanta was home to the birth of the country music industry when Fiddlin' John Carson played Little Old Cabin in the Lane for WSB in 1922. It was the first time that a country musician or a country song had been featured on the radio. 
Another local Atlanta musician of this era was Blind Willie McTell, one of the greats of Piedmont Blues. Because my main character, Cora, is essentially a folklorist and anthropologist of entertainment, the early recording industry is something I'm really interested in learning more about. I have a book on my wish list called Barrel House Blues, Location Recording and Early Traditions of the Blues by Paul Oliver, whose name reminds me of Polly Oliver, which is that folk ballad that the main character of Terry Pratchett's Monstrous Regiment was named after. Uh, but I digress. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I've got another book on my list called Ragged But Right, Black Traveling Shows, Coon Songs, and the Dark Pathway to Blues and Jazz by Lynn Abbott and Doug Seroff that I think I want to read first, just for the sake of chronology. That book, I think, will touch on the fact that during the minstrel show era, there were actually quite a few black entertainers who made their living as blackface performers, which is really interesting and complex and a bit messy to think about. I think that book will help me give uh, a lot of context to the history of black music in general. There's just, oh, there's just so much to learn and there's so much more I could say about this topic, but there's honestly just not enough time to fit all of it in. Uh, for now, though, I'm going to take this opportunity to advertise a little bit, and afterwards I'll close out with some society slants. So, first off, you can find me on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, Etsy, and Patreon as The Woodmother, all one word. If you'd like to get me one of those books from my wish list, I've linked it down below in the uh, show description. And I've also got merch for sale. My first batch of Woodmother stickers are for sale in my Etsy shop for $5 each. And if you'd like to subscribe to me on Patreon, you'll get access to my Woodmother's Cottage Discord server, which, in addition to being a great community full of cool people, is where I write all of my research notes in a log, and I regularly chat about my story progress. So if you really want to learn more about the Gate City Blues, that is a great way to do so. Speaking of patrons, thank you to August, Daniela, and Miranda for being some of my biggest supporters over the past few months. All right, now on to society slants. So I mentioned in the last episode I have been researching the Atlanta Daily World newspaper, uh, and the earliest archives I could find were from 1931, and they feature a gossip column called Society Slants by quite an interesting character named Lucius Jones. Uh, I want them to be a regular feature of my podcast, so I'm going to start with the earliest one available, and we'll work our way through them chronologically to really get a feel for, you know, what the the day-to-day -day life of the black community in Atlanta was like during that era. So this, the earliest one I could find, is from December 2nd, 1931. Folks, this is going to be hot! Those blatant Bama State Collegians will be back out at Sunset Casino Saturday night after the Tuskegee-Morris-Brown clash, with the gay fellers of the house again acting as hosts to Atlanta society. Like on last Saturday night, when 400 thrilled members of local social circles listened and danced to the sweetest and most elevated jazz rendered by colored performers that this section has heard in quite a span. The night will be pregnant with fun. There'll be thrills galore. 
the Justinians and the Lampotus Club of Beta Psi Chapter of the Omega Psi Phi Fraternity furnished the entertainment for most of the younger set last Friday night. We told you about that highly entertaining Justinian ringer in the Sunday edition of last week. We will illuminate you with details of that Omega affair in the Friday edition of this week. We will tell you about the hilarious developments of last Saturday night and of last Monday night at this instant. Those Bama staters, ten pieces strong, took sunset by storm last Saturday. They flaunted two aces who really knew when to hit their trumps. Those two gentlemen rallied about the scintillating jazz of their mates and won themselves lasting fame before the local populace. The duet was none other than that symphonic Jimmy Mitchell, saxophone artist, and the leather-lunged Erskine Hawkins, blatant but highly harmonious trumpet star. Both boys will have crashed into national publicity with their musical long suits. Uh, by the way, I just want to note that I love his use of the word blatant as an adjective. At the piano, Paul Bascom, a young past master of the forte, was eliciting much attention with his impeccable stroking of the ivories. Bolden, drummer and bandleader, was beating his way through the world with an incessant purring that sounded like just so much reverberating hail. The sax trio was pumping all the substance out of its musical implements. The trumpeters were ballyhooing in a mode so compelling as to eject the envy of old Lewis himself, and in the rear of the pianist, who was behaving in the manner of a man stricken with combination seven years itch and St. Vitus dance, the performer at the bass viol was turning the big tool around like a maypole and stroking it indifferently with a lone finger. Those boys are jazz vendors and how! Out on the floor, which was so waxy that it took on the aspect of a veritable skating rink, there was murdersome glee, and a resonance from gliding feet such as mortal ears seldom hear. Epicurus peeped down from the throbbing balustrades of the roof and laughed vociferously. Pluto grinned his sinister grin of a demon satisfied with his work. Morpheus groaned impatiently. You should have been there. Helen Chase Johnson was out in the mirth for the first time in a pair of ages and looking as alluring as of old. B. Maxie, up from Talladega, experienced the apparently soothing sensation of dancing 99 and 10 tenths percent of her numbers with that debonair Blanchard gentleman. Charles Herndon Faison rambled through his conversation like a man full of laughing soup, giggle water, carbonated hash, or what have you. Robert Stout was first to succumb to that treacherous sea of wax old Sam Speed had made of the hitherto impeccable floor. He did a perfect Leon Errol on the very first number. Shepard Turner insisted that I'm the colored Walter Winchell. Just... A quick side note here, Shepard Turner seems to be one of Lucius's close friends. He shows up pretty often in Lucius's writing, actually. I'm, I think Shepard Turner might be a fellow writer for the Atlanta Daily World. Lucius also proudly reminds everyone that he's the colored Walter Winchell multiple times over the next several weeks. Uh, and Walter Winchell, by the way, was a famous white gossip columnist, uh, radio personality, and Broadway reporter who got his start as a vaudeville performer. All right, back into it. Oh, oh man, this is my favorite part. <laughs> 
Juliet Jackson exchanged ogles with Jimmy Mitchell, star saxophonist of the Collegians. By the way, my husband says that should be pronounced saxophonist, but I'm not, I'm not convinced that he's not just messing with me, but I'll try it his way. Juliet Jackson exchanged ogles from Jimmy Mitchell, star saxophonist of the Collegians. Jimmy Mitchell was given a grand surprise by his Birmingham sweetie, who happened on the scene just as he was capitalizing a Dan Cupid smile upon Juliet. And then the fun began. Miss Edna Lenyard, the Birminghamian, had hardly signed off when the orchestra flared up with I'll be glad when you're dead, and old Jimmy played louder than all the rest. It'd be easier to tell who wasn't at sunset last Saturday night than to relate who was there. However, a few of the fun throng who were especially noticeable for one reason or another last Saturday night were Pap Ward, Alma Long, Jerome and Juanita Chapman, Shepard Turner, Jesse Arnett, Irene Gilmore, Ella Mae Wilkins, Thomas Dawson, Red Smith, Leonard Archer, Louise Mitchell, Vivian Mapp, Jimmy Lou Wilkins, Edna Linyard, Willa Kate Taylor, Robert McFarland, M.B. Weaver, Hattie Thomas, Eugene White, Sarah Brookins, Grover Stewart, Eric Roberts, Willie Harper, Willie Mae Poole, Herbert Rowland, Addie Crump, Grady Brooks, Skinny Greenwood, that is an excellent name, please name one of your Dungeons and Dragons characters Skinny Greenwood, Bo and Collier Kaysen, Thomas Borders, Jimmy Hembry, Jimmy Perry, Jesse Foster, Sarah Brinson, Coach F.L. Forbes, John D. Gaither, C.V. Troop, Samuel P. Charleston, and many others. Geraldine Mitchell would be out. No wise now. I have no idea what that means. No wise now. W-H-Y-S. I... Some of this slang is just completely incomprehensible to me. By the way, Miss Jerry Mitchell had a gay little breakfast affair at her home on Lena Street Southwest on Turkey Day. God, I wish... I wish it could be said of me in a newspaper that I had a gay little breakfast affair. <laughs> we'll tell you all about it Friday. We'll also chronicle the Sunday affair of Miss Anne Travers, her mother and friends, out in South Atlanta a few days back on the social calendar. It will be in Friday's issue, as will scores of other minor social doings of which we have been informed by many world readers who sent items to this column at the office. Keep eyes and ears peeled, folk! More news about The Maniac's social headliner honoring Atlanta athletes will appear in these columns each issue hereafter. It's important to note here that Lucius Jones is referring to himself in the third person as The Maniac. Uh, he's advertising his own party. Um, he frequently refers to himself in third person as The Maniac within the context of the gossip column. He also has a sports column in which he gives himself a different nickname. In the sports column, he calls himself Melancholy Jones. He's... God, he's so dramatic. He's so dramatic. The affair will take place at Sunset Casino under cleverly outlined circumstances Friday, December 11th. Ten blatant musicians will peddle the jazz of the night. Invitations for the big event have just been run off by Robinson and Coder and will begin to circulate among Atlanta's social realm tomorrow. As in the past, the hours will be ten till two, and again such well-known professional men as Drs. H.M. Holmes, E.G. Bowden, L.M. Hill, 
Mr.s C.W. Washington, Jesse O. Thomas, W.H. Aiken, and others will be out. To be sure, the younger set will be out. The affair promises to be the most exclusive ever to be staged in the Sunset Casino. Keep eyes and ears peeled for more developments. Intended to tell you about that highly satisfying annual of the Peacock Charmers last Monday night, but my space is about exhausted, and I could never forgive myself if I dared attempt to relate an affair like that one in less than half a column. Therefore, stand by until Friday, when you will also be able to delve back into the mirth episodes of the first night of the social week. Don't get caught in the rush. Get the good old togs and strugs together for the December 11th headliner at sunset. It should prove the kingpin of them all. Don't forget Macbeth at Morehouse Friday night. There's just so much content in society slants. There's just so much information about how their little community was structured, what people did for fun, who was dating who. The society slants are really a treasure trove, but I'm so glad I found them. All right, everybody, that just about does it for this week's episode. Uh, But this time around, I actually planned in advance what to include in the outro. So... I want to say thank you to Leah, who you can find on Instagram as Quacodile, Q-W-O-C-O-D-I-L-E, for her work in designing the logo for my Gate City Blues project. And also, big thank you to Soraya, who you can find on TikTok as Soraya Peregrine, for writing my theme song. Alright, everybody, see you next time. I should... I should have an outro... It's something that Lucius Jones says. He has so many good one-liners. Okay, hold on. Let me scroll up through my script and see if I can find, like, some good Lucius Jones one-liners. Those boys are jazz vendors and how? (laughs) That one doesn't work. That one's not very good. I'll be glad when you're dead. What if that was my outro? Just, like, kiss your dad square on the lips. (laughs) I'll be glad when you're dead. And nobody will know why. Nobody will know why. That's the outro. No, that's not a good one. Uh, How about keep your eyes and ears peeled for more developments? That's a good one. All right. Bye, everybody. Keep eyes and ears peeled for more developments.